0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Andrea Pearson, and I'm here with my two co hosts. I'm Joe Lalo. And I'm Lindsay Baroker. And joining us today is best selling author Sarah Painter. Sarah, is that how you say your last name? It is. Good. Awesome. And she has a beautiful accent, as you'll find out here soon. <laughs> and um, Sarah is the author of several best-selling fantasy novels, including her urban fantasy series, Crow Investigations. She is the host of the Worried Writer podcast and has written two nonfiction books for authors based on the show and her own experience as an anxious, introverted creature. <laughs> I love that wording. Um, before writing books, Sarah worked as a freelance magazine journalist, blogger, and editor, combining this career with amateur child wrangling. <laughs> also known as motherhood. Uh, Sarah lives in rural Scotland with her husband and children. She drinks way too much tea. Just kidding. (laughs) Just too much is what she says. Too much tea. Loves the work of Joss Whedon, which I do too, and is the proud owner of a writing shed, which I'm very fascinated by. (laughs) Anyway,
1: so welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here.
0: Yeah. Um, we are going to be asking Sarah a lot about marketing as an introvert and how to successfully market urban fantasy when you're not in KU. Um, and Sarah is one of the authors that is participating in this year's business books for authors story bundle. Um, that's the yeah story bundles business book thingy that Kevin J. Anderson co- um, puts together every year. Anyway, we're going to delve into that more in a bit, but first Sarah, why don't you go ahead and tell us how you got into indie publishing?
1: Sure. So, um, I think like everybody, I always wanted to be a writer and uh, it it took me a wee while to really overcome my terrible self-doubt enough to really give it a good go. And uh, I initially just thought traditional was the way to go. So, I spent, you know, a few years getting rejected at at all levels, very exciting, Um, and getting an agent changing agents, getting a new agent, doing a master's, basically looking for the external validation that being a real writer, making it. And in 2013, uh, my debut came out, I got a deal with Karina. And instead of, you know, the sort of heavens opening and and birds singing and all my self-doubt disappearing and the world becoming great, instead, I was even worse. I totally melt. Honestly, I lost my tiny mind because all of my self-doubt was still there. All of that external validation wasn't enough. I still didn't feel like a real writer. And to really just cap it all, I had no control. So I had my dream, finally, and someone, anybody could just take it away from me because it wasn't in my control. And so I was basically writing another book for Karina and panicking and procrastinating and generally being in not a great, not a great state. And I started investigating indie publishing. I discovered Joanna Penn um, originally and then others. And it was as if I just, as soon as I realized that you could look at publishing and writing as a business, Um, Oh my goodness, that was it for me. And added to that, I started the Worried Writer podcast and chatting away to all um, authors on both sides of, I don't really want to say both sides of the fence, but trad and indie. And I discovered very clearly that all my lovely, lovely trad friends were still panicking and disempowered and not making very much money, generally speaking. And... All my indie friends, uh, you know, were empowered and excited and sharing strategies. And they had this real sense that they they were in control because they were. And that was it for me. I knew I had to go Um, hybrid, um, indie, whatever.
0: That's, that's kind of close to, I mean, not exactly, obviously how it went for me, but I was with a traditional publisher and I was like, there's so much control and they can, you know, this was back in 2010 ish 2011. And, but I was at that point, that was when all the eBooks were exploding and my publisher wasn't doing anything where eBooks were concerned. I mean, it's like, you can release my book as an eBook and then we can take care of paper later. And she's like, Nope, we're doing paper. And, And I was like, it was just absolutely ridiculous. And I was like, this is, this is stupid. And, and I wanted to be more involved and she let me be involved, but then she, it was kind of like a, you can, you can help out, but I've got the final say. And so she nixed everything I wanted and, um, put a stupid book cover on it. And anyway, so I ended up switching over to any publishing is, you know, so much better that way.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I'm so delighted. I think I'm glad that I went trad first because I know that the grass isn't greener. (laughs) If you see what I mean. Again, no disrespect. I I love the whole book industry. But uh, for me, the grass is not greener. And also, I just had to because I wish that I had been more empowered to choose myself earlier on. And, you know, I've wasted all that time. I've only been hybrid for a couple of years. But on the other hand, I am who I am. And I am very anxious. And I had, I had to do it that way.
0: Yeah, no, it makes sense. It really does. And that's a good point about the grass being greener. You know, I think mm. that, um I've had, I've had down years. I've had uh, really good years, the bad years. I might've been tempted to try traditional publishing, but having been there, I was like, no, I will never go back. Cause even in my worst months, when I was being um indie published, I was still making more than all of my traditionally published author friends. And so, you know, it's just, it's like, it's just not worth it. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do better over there. Um, you mentioned in your email to me that you've been a six figure author for the past couple of years. Uh, what was it that tipped you over?
1: Uh, first off going hybrid, (laughs) I think as we just touched on, it is so much easier to make money when you're getting the lion's share of the royalties. And I think Honestly, and this is really not a great answer. It's an annoying answer. I was very lucky. I had a couple of really good promotions. Um, that's annoying because it's not easily irreplicable. And um, so apologies for that. But I was looking back through my timeline so I could answer you properly. And, um, the Night Raven came out October 2018 and then the silver mark which is the follow-up came up it uh, came out in May 2019 so about six months Uh, but in March I got a Kindle daily deal on the Night Raven and that really boosted things and then um, in launch week of the silver mark I got a book bub on the Night Raven and the following months of June 2019 I had my first solid five-figure month And that was with two books in that series, one standalone in fiction. So, and then I thought, I can't believe this is happening. (laughs) How did you keep
2: the momentum going after that?
1: Um, Poorly, I think. um, I have had on my list of things to do, master advertising for quite some time. I've got Mark Dawson's course I've done it. um, But I still haven't scaled up Amazon ads. Um, I have been running them. I spend about £300 a month maybe on Amazon ads. And it's on my list of things to do is to try and up that. Facebook, again, I've dabbled, but I've maybe done two weeks worth of Facebook ads. I haven't spent very much at all there. Again, it's a plan to to do that Um, what I did do is I stayed in touch with my newsletter not a huge newsletter but really organic very engaged um, I kept in touch with them every month um, and then I got the third book out another six months later so again no nowhere near rapid release of any kind but I was staying in touch with my core readers I guess and letting them know the book was coming I but yeah I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that's
2: all right. No, it's good that you've been able to keep it going. Um, that's one of the challenges. It's like a book club great, but then to continue to sell month mm-hmm. after month is always hard.
1: I mean, you definitely see the, the drop off, don't you? you? You know, the release month and then the month after was fantastic. But then, you, you know, you sort of see it coming down. Um, and I'm hoping that over time I'll get more used to that kind of... I'll get less panicky about the fact that you watch it. Kind of, uh, you watch your uh, your income decline or your um, your sales decline until you have another release. Um, but I, I feel that hope. I hope that the base well, the, so far the base level, it is you know is getting higher each with each release. So I hope that that continues more or less
2: it definitely helps when you have more books in your backlist too. So when you do get more people in, hopefully they'll become fans and and go read everything. Mm
1: -hmm. Another thing I would say that possibly helped is that I, um, it's hard to know, but I also, I sold the audiobook rights to WFF house. Um, And so then they're always coming out later and I don't know whether then you've got another thing that you can, you can promote. And I know that they did a wee bit of promotion and I had a sort of, some placement on audible and things and I think that I might not be releasing very fast but I think hopefully then the other the other format coming out and you know and I also released a box set of the first three in the series just last month and again I think just it just helps those having some things coming out even though I'm quite slow. Right gives you something else to market, yeah. um, so you've been
2: uh, writing urban and contemporary fantasy for a few years. What are your thoughts on the state of the genre today and how competitive it is for indie authors or all authors I guess
1: um, I feel so ill equipped to answer this question because um, I kind of as I say the, the urban fantasy the solid urban fantasy has been just the last couple of years um it does seem quite competitive. I know it's obviously a competitive, uh, a competitive genre, um, but I can't. I I don't think about marketing when I'm writing at all. So, it's just what I I love writing. All fiction ends up with a bit of magic or supernatural or something weird going on in it when I write it, and so I just have to accept that it's going to be maybe a wee bit tricky. I know that when I was going trad. A lot of feedback I would get was continually, it's going to be a hard sell. This is cross genre. It's going to be tough to sell. Um, or, you know, would you like to write a straight crime thriller with no demons? Or, you know, that kind of feedback. So I was kind of prepared for the fact that this is, this is maybe tricky to sell. So from my point of view, it seems like it's great because I can't believe it's selling at all. Again, not helpful. Sorry. <laughs>
0: Um, I think it's worth pointing out that your books are not in Kindle Unlimited, um, mm your indie books and your, um, traditionally published books. So sometimes that really, really helps people having them in Kindle limited helps them have, you know, more visibility more money. But I'm guessing that this is just showing that your, your stories are well-written, um, about how long are they each of your indie books? Um,
1: my indie series are about 70,000 words each and the Lost Girls, which is the standalone is much longer because that was sub to trad. So it had to be 90,000 to 100,000 words long um but yeah my my crow series are are reasonably short um and I think I mean the KU thing oh my goodness it was so tricky to decide uh, what to do because listening to the podcast I knew the advice and I went and I did my research and I looked at what was doing well in the chart for urban fantasy and I saw the vast majority were in um, k u so that would suggest launch into k u um but i didn't want to because um I try to make my business decisions from the top level down, starting with my goals, my version of my definition of success, uh, what I'm aiming for long term, because I want to do this long term. And so I knew that I didn't want to be in KU because it wasn't really aligned with that long term goal. Um, but I was really worried that I was cutting my nose off and that I was you know, going to fail as a result. So what I did was... When I was finding my comp titles to uh, give the cover design of the brief and so on, I didn't just look, in fact, I didn't look at the top-selling KU urban fantasy books. I looked at traditional published non-KU urban fantasy and used those as my comp titles for my cover Again, I was terrified that this was a really bad idea, but open um, fantasy covers have, you know, the figure, as, as you all well know, have the figure, don't they, and the, you know, a bit of magic. Um, and that is time and time and time again, all the covers you'll see. And I went with, um, I'm holding it up for those on video, um, the more motif sort of cover. So I've got, you know, stylized bird silhouettes on the on the front of the night raven um, and symbols. And that was much more in keeping with my comp titles that weren't in KU. And so that was kind of what I tried to do was place myself next to those. And I also thought that maybe that sort of cover was more common perhaps in the UK, UK authors, whereas the figure definitely, or the US um based or uh urban fantasy definitely had the figure as far as I could see. And I also thought that's no bad thing if I'm warning folk that, you know, this is a British writer and the book is set in London. So I thought, but yes, I was super nervous about it. <laughs>
3: You know, it makes a lot of sense. We, well, I forget which show, but we we discussed uh, a while ago about how there are different cover expectations in, all across the board. And, it, you know, UK versus America uh, tend to have some pretty significant differences between book covers, even from very well-known authors. There'll be a UK and an American book release with drastically different covers. So I think it's good to sort of, again, you're setting expectations and you're sort of riding the line between uh, on old, old episodes, I would use the phrase the untied shoe philosophy, which is There's a row of shoes that are tied and then one untied shoe, that's the one that catches the eye. So you have a cover that makes sense with your genre, but looks different from the other covers that also make sense for their genre because they've been targeted for different uh, you know, audiences. So I think I think it was good thinking. (laughs) I hope so. So uh, uh, those of us on the podcast have all done a fair amount of experimentation with urban fantasy, and overall, we found uh, that there are some fairly specific expectations from the audience. Uh, what do you feel are the, defi- are the defining tropes uh, and characteristics of urban fantasy?
1: Um, I think I'm, again, not brilliantly uh, placed uh, to answer this because I, I read widely, um, but I haven't read a huge amount of sort of more modern, more recent urban fantasy. Um, And so I'm not really that sure what's going on in the whole trope situation. But when it comes to tropes in general, what I always think about is that they are really um, a shorthand for the sort of reader experience, uh, what emotional experience the reader is going to have when they read that sort of book. And for me, urban fantasy or contemporary, you know, contemporary fiction with a wee bit of fantasy in there is all about that sort of solid real world that we can recognize, but just twisted. Um, so you can really imagine that sense of discovery that there is this whole other layer beyond the mundane that you, the chosen one, can see. And it gives you that mystery. It gives you that sense of possibility. And it gives you that feeling of being in on a, like amazing secret. And it also, at the same time, gives you that power that you're going to solve the mystery or right the wrongs or whatever. So I feel like as long as you're delivering that core experience, that core emotional experience, experience, then the kind of story elements you can probably play with, I mean, I guess as long as you've got some (laughs) fantasy.
3: Now, uh, you say that you you stay uh, pretty well in contact with your uh, with your audience through the the newsletter. Uh, mm. Are there any aspects that you, time and time again, people sort of let you know they really enjoyed about your writing?
1: Uh, yeah, I. Oh, it's um, so incredible to me that people reply to my newsletter, um, and I only email probably once a month because I am an introvert and I do hate doing it, much as I'm grateful for it. Um, But I do get lovely messages about my characters um, and about the world building, specifically in terms of um, comments I get are things like, gives a realistic view of what it would be like to have magic in the world. So I think somewhere along the line I'm getting that – that experience of it is the real world, but not quite as you know it. And what would it actually be like? It's always rooted in reality.
2: It's interesting what you were talking about with the covers, maybe appealing more uh, in the UK. It's it's a shame that at this point in time, anyway, we can't actually do like a different cover for the different I'm audiences. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Americans like don't mind the, like the gun on the front, the real tough girl or guy covers. And I feel like that's not as big over there and maybe not even allowed in that some of the publishers yeah, don't allow, like, no. the gun pointing towards the cover.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think it's also in other genres, you know, there's a, a real trend in the U.S. for, or there was, for very uh, uh, photographic covers in, like, women's fiction. And then there was a trend in the U.K. for a more cartoony, illustrative style. And, yeah, I, I'm so jealous of um, trad publishers that they can release these different territory versions Maybe one day.
2: <laughs> it could be coming, you never know. Um I feel like with a London setting, I think Americans will uh read that, find it mysterious and appealing. do you find that you sell better in the UK or in amazon.com or the mm. dot coms?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think I do sell I I think I do sell better in the UK. I need to look at all my stats, don't I? Um uh but I do have lots of readers um in Canada and, and the US and Australia and um yeah, I I get lots of nice comments about people enjoying um I had a really lovely email from someone who said that they really enjoy learning new words because of my strange turns of phrase. <laughs> so that was nice.
2: You're like new words or new slang maybe
1: <laughs> that we have to. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah, more more swear words. <laughs>
2: So as far as pricing goes, I notice you're, you're wide, but at least right now you're not doing a perma-free book one, which is very popular with um, wide authors, of course. Um, what, have you experimented with pricing, changing the prices, or um, what are your thoughts on pricing?
1: Again, I went with my whole... I mean, with my very lack of <laughs> lack of experience, I went with the kind of top-down decision-making. So I decided that I wanted to try to gather readers who would pay for books um, and would pay, you know, $3.99 in the UK, $4.99 in the US, a reasonable price. And um, so I decided that I wanted to do price promotions so that, um, which I do. Uh, so you get a real deal because there's not usually at that price. Um, but that generally speaking, I wanted to train people to expect you know, the books cost um, that amount of money. And so what I did do is I did a soft launch for the Night Raven where I did have it at a really cheap price for a couple of days to let my ARC team go and leave reviews and things because then my concern was getting reviews and, you know, making a a success of the very first one coming out. And then I did a very tiny price drop Again, soft launch just for my newsletter people on the second book. And then I did my very first pre-order for The Fox's Curse, and that was a full price pre-order. Um, and, yeah, and then the next one, again, full price uh, pre-order. So I'm, I'm planning to carry on with the sort of price um, pulsing but promotions on The Night Raven. But long term, when I finish this series, I think that trying free, First in series, or um, putting it permanently at ninety nine pence, uh, something like that is definitely going to be a strategy I'll try. And um, I have, I do feel like I need to work quite a bit harder to get a better foothold wide. Um, I apply for the Cobo promotions a lot, and Cobo's doing doing reasonably well. But um, yeah, there's always so much to do, isn't there? But I feel excited that I do have all these things that I can try.
2: Yeah. You mentioned, um, uh, you've been trying the Amazon ads and Facebook ads a little bit. Um, are there other things you d- just said, a couple of promotions uh, any other advertising or how active are you on social media and all that?
1: I'm useless at all of that. Um, um, I do, I mean, I've, I've done a wee bit of newsletter building, um, but not much, mostly organic. I, what I decided to do, which is my advice for, um, fellow introvert feeble people like me is to just really focus down and choose one social media platform or you know two if you want to go wild and I was already on Twitter but I hardly ever go there I just check my mentions and you know promote the podcast and that's it and Facebook I kept on meaning oh you know I'm gonna I'm going to post on my page every every week and then not doing it so last month I set it as a as a short-term goal, um, you know, to sort of see if that makes a difference. And um, so, as you can tell, quite recently, I've been working on that. Um, BookBub's had a couple. That helps. Uh, Kindle deals. Again, I've been lucky. I've had some Kindle deals um, offers. Uh, Amazon ads. And I dipped my toe in BookBub ads and spent some money quite quickly And I wasn't sure how it didn't seem super successful. And so I'm going to try that again when I have a price promotion on.
3: All right. So um, this is going to be a little bit of speculation on your part, I think, but uh, (laughs) uh, so like, well, well, tied to what we were talking about earlier, like, you like your cover decision was in a, in a way based upon, you know, what trad authors were doing. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you're wide also makes your book look more like a trad author. So you do feel, do you feel like different a- advertising tactics work better for things like you're even setting your price in a way that's, that's similar to, to trad authors? Do you think that different types of advertising help when you're sort of mimicking trad versus when you're doing a lot of the standard, uh, indie stuff like, like, uh, freeze the series starter?
1: Well, that's a really good question. Um, And like you said, I think it is is speculation. Um, But you're absolutely right. I think what I've done so far has been the things that I kind of have brought over from my trad side, Uh, partly because I wanted everything to look indistinguishable. And um, partly, as I say, because of the sort of long term the long term goals and realizing that I didn't fit into the, um, uh, what a lot of successful indies are doing, which is to release more, more frequently. And I know how slow I am. So I figured it would make sense. And um, I don't know about in terms of advertising, I think maybe focusing on content marketing, um, is probably a good idea more than. More than it being a difference with advertising, I would say focusing on branding, overall author branding and content marketing um, is important because you don't have that... Um, if you don't have a free series starter you you have got a barrier to entry so i think that makes it more important for your marketing whether it's your content marketing or, or i guess your paid marketing to be really giving a flavor and to be drawing people in and to be playing that slightly longer game you know um to be uh, to accept the fact that you're not going you're not going to, excuse me, you're not going to get a direct rate of return on every single piece of content or advertise, um, ad that you put out in the world. It's about raising that awareness and drawing people in so that eventually they will be happy to part with cash. <laughs> um, and hopefully at that point, they already know that they like you because you've been authentic and you've used your real voice, um, in typing, obviously, um, not, not like this. And um, so they already know they like your writing voice so that you've already kind of stacked the deck in your favor that they're then going to enjoy your book, which leads to them joining your mailing list, telling their friends. And it's, it's that frustrating, slow, slow, slow approach. So
0: uh, do you think, um, does your publisher run any, any promotions or any advertisements for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, Lake Union, actually, and Karina, to be fair, I've been very lucky. They, you know, sometimes I'll be applying for a book bub and it'll knock me back to say, oh, no, do you know you can't apply for one because we don't like to have the same author and you've got a book bub booked for one of your trad books? And that, that's the first I've heard of it. I'm sort of, oh, darn it. <laughs> um, but obviously, that's fantastic that they're still promoting. Um, Lake Union are very good on promotion, it must be said. Uh, they know how to shift books. Um, so, yes, that's been great. Uh, I also got to experience the excitement of having a publicist uh, with Lake Union for, you know, a short time. And that was thrilling and exciting But it also really hit home to me how you only, uh, understandably, it's for such a short time. And these things don't, again, as I think I was just saying, things like um, an interview in a magazine, they don't move the needle. You don't see it. And so it feels pretty pointless. But it's that slow drip. You don't know. You know, I've had a podcast listener say, oh, I heard about you in this magazine interview that I thought made no difference whatsoever, then they've become a podcast listener. They haven't bought a book, but then a year later, after listening to the podcast, they've, event- you know, they've then decided to try my books or tell a friend. or And it's that intangible nature of it, which, you know, it can be really hard to deal with, but... Yeah.
0: So I'm just, I think I'm going to bet that some of, I mean, you, you've got a solid readership. Um, they're following you from your traditional published books, your indie books, they're already used to a slow, slower pace, which I mean, the readers who like fast pace are going to go to the authors who have a fast pace, you know? So, but there are readers who prefer that slower pace. And if they are already preferring that, they're going to stick around. And especially with like the book covers, like you said earlier, that, that match what they're expecting prices, promotions. I mean, this is all part of a, a a solid business plan. You know, you decide at the outset what your, what your goals are, and then you, you, make sure you always stay within that goal and then not to jump around. Cause one of the things I've done is I don't generally release quickly. I release three, you know, three books a year, sometimes four books a year, but occasionally I try to release faster than that. And my readers, I get, I get complaints, you know? And so I'm like, my problem has been consistency. And if I, and if you're not being consistent, then you, it's too hard for readers to figure out, you know, it's too hard for readers to find you if you're not consistent to their styles.
1: Mm, I think um, that's so true.
0: Okay. So we, um, as I mentioned earlier, you have a book in this year's, um, nano story bundle, it's called stop worrying and start writing how to overcome fear, self doubt, and procrastination. So what led you to write that? You can just delve right into that book and explain (laughs) it. And then you've also got another one that's start worrying, stop worrying and start selling. So you can go Mm -hmm. ahead and just explain why you wrote those books.
1: So, um, stop worrying, start writing. And I wrote, because I was utterly riddled with self-doubt and it took me a very long time to really try writing fiction properly. I kept, um, I always put it off. Um, I wrote lots of angsty journal entries about how I wanted to be a writer, but that I couldn't do it. I wasn't clever enough. I didn't have enough ideas. What if I did it and I couldn't, and then the dream would be taken away and all of that. Um, And then as I say, when I finally got over those hurdles, um, I just found that the more external validation, the things that I thought would fix me, did not fix me. (laughs) And I also then learned through doing the podcast that I wasn't alone. All the things that I thought about being, you know, very, very, very anxious person and and quite a worrier and being filled with self-doubt, those things didn't mean that I couldn't be a writer. I found that that was actually quite normal. And it was such a weight lifted off me that I wanted to provide that for other terrified writers Um, and also you know with the podcast I was helping folk who emailed me and I did a wee bit of um, one-to-one mentoring and things which I enjoyed but it's not a super efficient way of helping people so I kind of thought if I put it all in a book then I've got somewhere to direct people and you know and then the same thing with the, um, with stop wearing, start selling. I kind of figure out what I think about things by writing. So I knew that I needed to get better at selling and marketing. I knew that I had massive mindset issues around it that was stopping me from doing it and um, stopping me from really trying. And I, I am ambitious. You know, I do want to do well in this, in this job. So I really worked on worked on those issues. And a lot of that, as I say, is through writing. I journal about things, I write them down, I learn about them, because, and then I write about what I'm learning. And so I thought, after a wee while, actually, I think I've got another book here. <laughs> um, and also, if I'm not the only introvert writer who's struggling, and again, all again on podcasts, or with my friends, the same things will come up over and over and over again. I just want to write I don't want to do the marketing and, and I, it hit me that I didn't want to spend the rest of what I dearly hope is a long career being negative about that side of it because we don't live in a magical unicorn land where books are magically discovered. We just don't. It would be great if we did, but we don't. And I thought, I don't want to be... I'm sick of myself whinging about this. like I need to I need to change my attitude. Um, and that has really, really helped. And so again, I, I wrote the book so that I could point people to it and say, that's everything that I've learned so far.
3: It's funny how uh, often the best way to learn something is to try to teach it, which is possibly one of the reasons that I'm on a podcast like this, <laughs> is to desperately absorb new information in the, in the process of distributing it. But uh, it seems like you're 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 fairly on board with the idea that uh, writers writing seems to attract people who have uh, self-doubt and self-deprecation issues. Mm-hmm. Uh what do you think the the source is for that? What do you think its link is to to just writers of fiction?
1: <laughs> I think that it's because writing is genuinely terrifying. <laughs> Honestly, I think if you're writing something and then anybody else is going to read it, let alone the general public, you are opening up your heart, your soul, your brain, the stories, the fantasies you have, and then you're putting them on the page or the Kindle and you're saying, please judge me, see inside the dark corners of me, and then leave a review. It's, it's, horrifying the whole thing is horrifying that is why we're so scared because we we're, we're sensible we've got good reason to be and also i think it's an evolutionary thing you know we're programmed to be to really fear embarrassment and shame um and that's because it makes sense to stay in the tribe you know, from an evolutionary point of view, it's safe in the tribe by the nice warm fire. And so you don't want to be embarrassed. You don't want to be an outcast. And so those kind of feelings of embarrassment or the fear of embarrassment, they really hit us. They hit us on a fundamental level. And I think that if you can accept that, accept that what you're doing is really, really blooming tough, then that goes some way to helping you to kind of do it anyway, rather than just feeling as if it's something you should be fine with. (laughs) And I also think another reason I think that writers are particularly filled with self-doubt and criticism is that most writers are readers first or, uh, you know, lovers of story in whatever form. So we've spent years using our critical brain, to tell us what we enjoy, what we don't enjoy, whether we like the ending of that particular series, whether that character should have been killed off, whether that worked for us, all of that. And that's fantastic for telling us what we want to read next. Useless for judging our own work because we basically turn that critical brain and we judge our own first draft words against the published novel we just read and enjoyed um and i think that's a huge part of it and my final reason why i think we are so terrified <laughs> um is to do with our own voice so our own voices by their very nature are really dull to us because we live with them so when you're writing and you're actually in your own voice when you're really on it writing really really well probably to the best of your ability and um, you are very in your voice. So then when you read it over, it seems dull. It seems dull. It seems embarrassing. It seems predictable because it's the voice you know. So I think that's another reason.
3: That's... that fantastic answer across the board (laughs) i had not thought about half of that stuff and it's very much uh, makes tremendous sense so you mentioned like if you're a writer you're inviting your stuff to be criticized uh, and judged critiques and other forms of criticism are also completely indispensable to improving your crafts and especially if you're an introvert even getting critiques is hard and then taking them if they're not you know rosy is even harder so like how do you seek and receive critiques without crumbling
1: Oh, so, so difficult. <laughs> um, yes anybody listening who is still trying to get up the nerve to show their work to somebody else for the first time or to get a critique please know that I was an absolute wreck for years with this and I still am you're definitely not alone and it's completely normal to feel that like you know to feel that way and having said that it does get easier with practice you know the first time I talked about my book with somebody else or, or had them read some of my creative writing I thought I was going to die and it does get easier the more you do it the more you realize the sky doesn't fall in you survive however you should also I think be super careful about who you um, approach for a critique it's my opinion that you want folk if you're earlier on and you're still very, I mean, we're always always learning, of course, but if you're really early on, then what you want, in my opinion, is a developmental editor or somebody who is ahead of you somewhere in some way, um, somebody who writes your genre would be even better, you know, someone or knows about your genre, even better. Um, you don't want too many opinions because you don't want to try and write by committee. And um, I think also, actually swapping critiques can be really good because the act of criticising somebody else's work is almost, I would say, maybe even more valuable. And I think, Lindsay, I think you might have said this on the podcast, that when you were in a group that you found critiquing other people's stories um, really valuable. Um, another thing I would say is that you do develop your own kind of sense, your own writerly sense about whether some feedback is helpful or applies to your story. And, um, And again, unhelpful answer is it takes time. It takes a lot of writing. It takes working on your own stuff um, to get that. And also always remember that it's just taste. There is no universally agreed upon gold standard of literary work. And so if someone is reading your work, if a beta reader, you want to make sure that they like your sort of the sort of book you're writing that kind of thing you want to really make sure curate where you're getting your opinions
2: yeah i like that your advice to uh not have that many beta readers i always have readers volunteering and i'm like no i've got like three people that's good because you do you get conflicting voices and sometimes it just takes too long to go through everybody's stuff too but there's a lot of I don't know. It's like, you can make more self doubt. If there's some people say this, some people hated this character, some people love them. And it does take a while as a writer to develop the confidence in your voice and your skill to like, sort of, if you know, know whether what they say applies Mm -hmm. or whether you're like, no, that's just not right. But in the beginning, we have no confidence, as you said.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And I think the kind of feedback, which is just, you know, early on, especially, you know, read this as a reader and tell me what you thought it was or what tripped you up. And it's not so much tell me what was wrong with it. It's tell me how you felt about it when you were reading it or if you didn't understand a bit. And then you as a writer go and look at why that might be um and then as you say later on when you're getting beta reads when you're a wee bit more experienced it's a case of not too many and the deciding vote always goes to the author always so if your gut's telling you it's your book it is your book you get to choose or if one person says one thing and the other person says the other deciding vote author every time it's your book (laughs)
2: That's the nice thing about self-publishing. Yeah. You can decide in the end. I, there's not as much pressure from someone else. Oh, it's amazing.
1: <laughs> I love it.
2: All right. So I have to ask the blurb for your uh, stop Worrying and start writing book says mm. how you can smash writing blocks to finish stories faster and trick yourself into being more productive. So do you have any tips that you can share uh, for our listeners?
1: Absolutely. I have huge amount of experience, sadly, in um, battling um, writing blocks and all of that. So my first tip, absolute top tip, is lie to yourself. Now, I am extremely adept at this. I have honed this over the years. So I will lie to myself when I'm writing. So I will say nobody will ever read this. It's another reason why marketing has to stay right out of my writing office, all business does, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to lie to myself with such um, success. So nobody will ever read this. Um, I've even gone as far as to put a different pen name, a pen name that doesn't exist on the title page, you know, on a blank page, such and such by made up name, because it's that this is not me and nobody will see it. This is not a Sarah Painter novel or, you know, so there's that. There's also lying to myself through the process in terms of not looking at the whole thing. So rather than thinking I'm going to write this scene today, it is I will lie to myself and I'm going to write a sentence today or I'm going to open the document today. I will keep on bringing down that. Um, I will break down the task until it is so small. That even I can do it in my feeble state, um, and I do that with everything. Honestly, absolutely everything. I break it down. Um, another thing I do uh, is to focus on process, not the product. So I think about practicing writing, and I talk about practicing or playing, or rather than as if I was learning an instrument. So uh, you know, you talk about practicing the piano or practicing scales or something. Um, so I try and. I try to catch myself and to rewire the way I talk about it and think about it. So it's all about if I show up and practice writing today, I get my cookie. Like I have got the gold star, I I also have rewards. (laughs) But I genuinely celebrate. I am working on a process. Being a writer means I spend this amount of time practicing writing regardless of the word count or the quality I don't even think about where it's going and I will spend time reading or watching Netflix and I will spend time having a walk and maybe having a wee think, because that's what being a writer is. And if I've done those things through the day, that's what gets the gold star. And over time, that will help.
3: I know that, uh, especially when we talk about breaking down into smaller pieces, I, I know a lot of people who've sent me emails like, I don't even know how to get started. How do I get started? A book is a big, huge thing. And I got a blank page in front of me. I'm like, well, if you write something on the blank page, it's not blank anymore. <laughs> like you'd be amazed at how often uh, just writing the first sentence makes the second sentence easier. So yeah, I absolutely understand like the idea of, of not overwhelming yourself with what will eventually be a titanic number of tasks because each one is just one. Tiny. Um, all right. So a lot of novices, authors uh, know the, all that they know about book marketing is what they've seen traditional book marketing do. And that's book tours and interviews. And uh, these are obviously pretty seldom if ever a part of indie marketing. So already indie marketing is frequently more suited to introverts. Uh, what would you say is the most extroverted thing that an indie author is likely to do? And what do you think, uh, you know, ha- introverts have in favor of them in indie marketing?
1: Um, I mean, I'm so I'm so glad that you that you asked this question because it's so true. It's another opportunity for me to be ridiculously positive about this amazing, amazing job that we get to do, which is that it's perfectly suited for introverts. Um, and yeah, there are lots of things, and I've spoken to uh, trad authors about this. Nobody can make you do unless it's written into your contract, which you then signed. So you still chose it. Nobody can make you speak to a room full of people or do a Facebook live or anything that is frightening to you in any way. You don't have to do any of those things. Um, but as you say, with with Indie, sorry even if you're trad you don't have to do those things like a publisher might ask you to you might feel a pressure to do it but you still don't have to do it so I always think that's important to remember um especially when you're in an industry that you might feel very out of control in um but yes in indie I think um some of the things with introverts that are particularly well suited are again in doing things in writing (laughs) I mean uh works out pretty well uh focusing trying to avoid overwhelm so focusing down choosing you know one social media platform or or deciding you're not doing it at all uh choosing instead to focus on your newsletter uh i think again you guys will probably agree with this you you should have a newsletter um but you can decide how often you're going to engage with with that newsletter um and i do have again i would break down uh, break down doing your newsletter. So I will write my email draft on one day. That's all the task for that day. And then I don't think about sending it until a few days later, things like that. So it's sort of rather than making it all big one scary performance, I remind myself that it's not, it is something that I'm in control of that I can then rewrite that I can you know, practice before anybody has to see it, um, and I think that's a that's another thing that is really good to remember as an introvert is that we don't have to get up on stage, but we do have an external author persona, or we should do. Because again, when I started, I really, when I was first published, I just felt so overwhelmed and so frightened of being out there, even in that tiny, tiny way. And so what I did was I really thought about putting on an author hat, if you like, a bit like my business hat. And it's kind of like, it's like going on stage. I'm still me. Author Sarah is still authentically Sarah, um, but it's a facet of me it's a facet of my personality. It's, it's the work, Sarah. And having that separation really, really helps um, to then post on Facebook or write a newsletter because it's author Sarah doing it, not private Sarah. I don't think I answered your question. I went off on one there.
3: It was still a good info. <laughs> That's
0: awesome. Um, <laughs> I just have a couple questions left for you, if that's okay. They're not on the list, but just listening to you made me want to ask them. Um, you mentioned rewards. What sorts of rewards do you use when you meet your goals?
1: Oh, so much stationery. Oh, stationery. Andrea, I, love, oh I love it. <laughs> I love stationery so much. So yes, I am, you know, an eight-year-old apparently because stickers colored pens washi tape so many planners so many notebooks it's it's a problem i do have a problem and i also tea um tea and um i mean cake sometimes wine sometimes <laughs> but no stationery is my big is my big one and i do also um save up books that i really want to read I read all the time, but you know, there is a book you're really looking forward to. I think, okay, when I have finished the draft or these edits, then I get that book.
0: Uh, Yeah, that's really awesome. I love paper, like paper, any kind of paper, notepads and pretty paper and just plain paper and pens. Colored
1: post-it notes. Oh, yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) My
0: husband's been stealing mine. (laughs) so many i have i have have like this drawer of them and like every now and i'm like where's my pink one (laughs) um okay so um for the moms and people in the audience who have full-time jobs how do you wrangle being a mom and running a business and writing
1: um well i have to say it's a lot easier now because my kids are much much older um so my baby is 17 now and my my older girl is 20 and has left home gone to university. So it is I have more time now than I have ever had <laughs> which is amazing. But I started all of this back when I yeah back when I had a toddler and a baby. And so all I can remember really is the magic of how much you can get done in a very short focus space of time. And also working in cycles. And I still do this now, because the more time you have, the more likely or the more time I have, the more likely I am to procrastinate and get filled with self down So I still use this strategy. And it's to divide to work project based. Um I divide the year up, I, I like quarterly. So I will have a couple of goals for a quarter. I'll have my reasons for those goals. So I'm really behind them. And then I do the breaking down into the small tasks and I have kind of light brain tasks. So, you know, a day when you haven't had enough sleep, you know, those, yeah, sorry. Of course, you know, those days you're living those days. (laughs) Um, Oh yeah. yeah. (laughs) So then it's for me to keep my mood, to feel like I'm still making progress, I can then take that light task, that light brain task that's going to take eight minutes. And I can, at some point during the day, hopefully do that one task. And then I get my gold star and I move forward and the day is a win. I think the challenge is really believing that the day is a win because comparisonitis means that we're continually thinking I should be doing X, Y, and Z. Or I should be moving forward faster. But yes, I think focusing down, being really project based, cutting out, saying no more than you say yes. And then, um, and then just occasionally, you know, on days when you can't, you can't write or you can't even do that one wee task, cutting yourself a break, you know, really bring down that, bring down that, um, that level that you're trying to hit. If you got out of bed, and the kids are all still breathing, you know, gold star. I'm sitting here
0: laughing so hard because like you're just describing, Mike, I bring down my bar, like my little bar goes down. Like every week it's gone lower. I'm like, okay, I I like got out of bed this week. Okay. I got out of bed after the kids fed them breakfast. Ah, oh, I'm getting worse. <laughs> Our toddler, like he's just, uh, man, this kid, like he's hurting himself, seriously hurt himself four times in the last three months where it he's a thumb sucker and it's in his mouth. He's like gotten huge, horrible sores cuts, you know, mm. need stitches. And I'm like, it's been four times in the last three months and thumb sucker he's up all night, every night for the, like, it's just been, uh, uh, I'm like, you're like 19 months. You're supposed to be our sleeper <laughs> now, not waking up all night.
1: But it's always this, it's always timing as well, isn't it? You just- it's either like things often one after the other or they'll just be poorly when you just you think you've got everything sorted and then there'll be a doctor's visit or a, or a sleepless night or 12. And yes. <laughs> yeah, it derails things. Yep. Um, all right. Well,
0: thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been great having you here. Um, Kate, I know people have heard me say this. So for those who have not heard it, where can people find your book in the story bundle? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. <laughs> so it's a uh, storybundle.com.
0: Yeah. Forward slash, forward slash
1: nano. nano. That's right. So yes, it's the NaNoWriMo bundle. And um, yes.
0: And then your other one, is it just, um, oh
1: yes. The other one, stop wearing, start selling is. It's available wide, so wherever you like to buy your books.
0: I like to buy my books on my phone.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. okay. And I am I am recording the audiobook of it uh, this month, so there will be an audio version. It's just a wee bit later than I had planned. Originally, 2020, what can I say?
0: Awesome. And your fiction, um, your website, what is your website? So, so can look up is your, is your nonfiction and your fiction, both on your website.
1: Um, it is, there's also the podcast website is worriedwriter.com or for my fiction. My main site is Sarah hyphen painter.com. But if you Google Sarah painter books, you should find me.
0: Yeah. That was going to be my last question. The podcast. So worried writer podcast, you've been doing that for like five years. You said,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, I am on a wee hiatus. I I did it five years with no breaks. And then (laughs) again, 2020. I'm going to, I'm just going to keep blaming this, this year. But, um, I thought I'm just going to take a wee break because again, final bit of advice, I guess, is it's so overwhelming with all the things that we can do and we don't have to do them all the time forever and ever. So it's okay to have seasons like Andrew, you know, you're maybe in a season in your personal life
0: of constant panic,
1: (laughs) but you won't be forever, you know, you won't be forever. And I just thought, actually, I need a few months. The most important thing for my business is to get the next fiction book out. So I need to just take a wee break on that, but I do miss it. So I'll probably probably be back in 2021.
0: Nice. Awesome. Thank you again so much for joining us. And thank you, thank you everyone for listening. Um, thank you to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the shotes, shotes, <laughs> show notes. I think I do that every time. Um, or leave a comment or question at sixfigureauthors.com with the number six and um, come join the Facebook group as well. The answer is not Lindsay or Andrea about the beard. Though if you do answer Lindsay or Andrea, we probably will let you in. <laughs> okay. Thank you, everyone. We'll talk to you all later. Bye. Bye-bye.
3: So long, everybody.